0: Thank you very much. I'm uh, very acutely conscious of the fact that I get such a warm reception from all the kids in this audience because they think that if they get to New York, I'll get them tickets for David Letterman. <laughs> let me put your mind at rest. That still is the toughest ticket in the city, and with good reason. I'm delighted to be here. I, I think it might be helpful if I spent just a few moments this morning, given the fact that so many of you come from Places like where I grew up and wonder how do you get from there to places like New York City and Washington, D.C. Well, it's not easy. Um, But the fact of the matter is that I find that as I travel across this country, and I have, in the course of my career and my personal interests, have been in virtually every state, and as I look at your name tags, it triggers all kinds of emotional responses to towns that I may have visited, experiences that I may have shared. Let me say to you that wherever you come from in America it is possible for you to achieve your goals, especially if you come, it seems to me, from those places like South Dakota, the Great Plains of America, where you have the uh, wide horizons, small communities that are nurturing, where there is the value of family and school, and where people are willing to have expectations for you, to have high hopes, to encourage you along the way. I say that all to all of you now so that you're not discouraged at this particular passage in your life, and so that in the course of your own future life as well, you'll remember that wherever you live, whether it's in a large city or in a small community, that you'll reach out to the younger members of the community and encourage them too, because that was extraordinarily helpful to me. When I was 17 or 18, I may have been in this room. I was an overachiever in high school. And then something very important happened to me when I went to college. Now, I give you this piece of immodesty so that I can give you the next passage in my life. That is, I lost my bearings for two years. I didn't quite flunk out, but I might as well have. I majored in girls, and as a friend of mine said, I thought beer was food between the ages (laughs) of 20 and 22. That probably was the most memorable and instructive time in my life because I came to appreciate the true value of hard work and fixed goals and not assuming that my high school reputation or my easy smile or my gregarious personality would get me through life. That in fact, in the wider world of competition, I would have to earn my way every day. And so I think that it was instructive for me at that time, not only to achieve, but to fail as well, and to conquer that failure at such an early age. Because I live with it today. You may think of Tom Brokaw, or Dan Rather, or Peter Jennings, or any of us who have achieved a certain amount of visibility in this profession, of being enormously secure in what we do. But I can assure you that we're kind of constantly looking over our shoulders. Any number of you have come up to me in this room and said, it's Mr. Brooke, I'll be sitting in your chair someday." <laughs> it's the kind of thing that keeps you well motivated if you have my job. My reaction to that generally is, if I may have your phone number, there are days when I'd like to call and have you sit in on that occasion. I chose journalism as my career and as my passion in life, because I'm a man with an enormous curiosity about how things are, not as they're perceived to be. My earliest memories, I wanted to know what was going on, what was happening, however small the community in which I lived. I wanted to know what was going on there, and especially I wanted to know what was going on over the horizon. That's the essence of journalism. News is change. It is not affirmation of life, it is an examination of life. What's new? What's different? How is the status quo likely to be challenged? A number of the speakers here this morning, I think, that have aroused your own interest have done that in that way by saying that you have to be constantly moving forward in life To have a full life, intellectually and emotionally, and for that matter, politically and culturally as well. Well, that's the essence of journalism. To share that change with you, to provide a basis of information on which you can make some decisions about your own life. I am engaged on a daily basis, not so much in a pursuit of the truth as I am in a pursuit of the facts, because the truth is elusive in our society. It's like beauty, it's in the eye of the beholder. What may be one man's truth is another woman's lie in many instances. But facts, that we can deal with as best we can. And I must tell you that I treasure being in the middle of what can only be described as the first rough draft of history, and it is no more than that. What we deal with every night on the nightly news or in the daily newspapers or even in the weekly news magazines in this country. Facts as we know them. The situation is that it now exists. It wasn't so long ago, for example, just a matter of days, when you think about it, when those thousands, hundreds of thousands of young people and workers were gathered in the Tiananmen Square in China and in the streets of the Chinese capital and in the provincial capitals, that many people began to think, in fact, that we were in for a sea change in China, that the government might collapse, that democracy would take hold in that ancient culture. Today, a different reality. It is a country in the grips of martial law. The aging communist leaders will have their way for the foreseeable future. And what will happen is terribly uncertain and probably terribly cruel for members of your generation and mine who had for a brief moment some hope that life could change. So we have to stay at ease, if you will, in the business of journalism be careful that we deal with what we know and not what we think we know. Examine the facts based on the long reach of history and not let our emotions get carried away. China is a perfect example of a reporter in this case. My own. I've been going to China for about 15 years now. As I examined what was going on there in the streets and in the square, I did so, I think, both with my mind and with my heart. In my heart, I hoped... Against all reality that it would work, in my mind, I had grave doubts. Deng Xiaoping is a man who had been purged three times from the Communist Party. He survived the long march. He was not about to let hundreds of thousands of students gathered in Tiananmen Square, with no real sense of where it was that they wanted to get to, drive him from office. And so we find ourselves now in in China with this uncertain situation with which we can all identify. And after having spent 10 days there, I can assure you that I have no keener sense now than I did before I went, how it may all turn out. So that's the essence of journalism, to examine change on a daily basis, to work uncommon hours, to lead an unconventional life, if you will, because it is not nine to five. It engages you in situations that are high risk, personally, physically. <laughs> It is a terrible demand on your family. I will share with you for a moment uh, some of what has happened in my own family in the last couple of weeks. One of the reasons I was unable to be with you last night is because I waited for my wife and two of my daughters, who are still banging around Asia at this time, to return. We had all uh, planned at some length a trek in northern Pakistan in the Karakoram, and given the broke our record, we had a fair sense of what might happen. My eldest daughter was working in Peshawar in a refugee camp, and she called me about three weeks before the trek was to begin, and she said, I have the Mujahideen under control. The Chinese are your problem. She knew what might happen. She knew that as the trek was scheduled to begin, that China might blow up, and in fact it did. So my wife and two daughters went on the trek on their own, and their parting words were to me, we know where you want to be. We'll be okay. Go ahead and do it. That, too, is important to a journalist, And I think it's important to any young person who is planning a life to think about the place of your family in your own career and in your own goals and how that can become part of the evolution, I think, of a whole person in America. If I were to uh, examine the change that has gone on in the society in the last eight years or so, I would say that that's one of the things that troubles me the most, is that we've had a deterioration of family values in America that people on an ad hoc basis are trying to decide what it is that they want to be. They are in pursuit of instant gratification rather than looking at the whole. And almost every speaker here today, whatever they've talked about, whether about the importance of books in society or taking risk or the examination of playground cruelty and how we come to the importance of learning, the essence of all that begins at home and how we reinforce one another. And for a journalist, I can tell you, that has been paramount in my life that my family, wife and three daughters, one a college graduate, two still finding their way through, one at Berkeley, one at Duke, have been enormously supportive of the uncommon life that we've had, the sense of adventure. And so I would say to you that if you're interested in journalism, it is not all public recognition and big pay. It's not all there on the local news screens every day. It is more, as Edmund Morris was saying, a matter of the tactile experience, getting out and examining what is going on. Be willing to be adventurous. Be willing to engage your own passions. Be willing, as well, to be a kind of pariah in your community because you will be bringing news that is unhappy to a lot of people, the news of change. We are all creatures of the status quo, some something comes along to challenge that, we're not very happy at all. But Finally, I would leave you with the thought that if we were to shut down broadcast news in America, close up the magazines, padlock the printing presses of America's great newspapers, the change in life would not stop. What would quickly happen is that it would happen to a degree that we would no longer be able to control it. We are better off as a society with a keener sense of an information than we are with a kind of euphoria about life as it exists that day. And so what I would like to enlist all of you in is a kind of army of news consumers, people who would like more from us, not less, who demand from their newspapers and from their local television stations and radio stations and from their news magazines a tougher approach to finding out what is going on in life, rather than a reaffirmation of it. And finally, let me tell you that this business of being a journalist on television and having public recognition is vastly overstated. In fact, I did work in Omaha after having left South Dakota, and I did go to Atlanta and Los Angeles and Washington, D.C., and eventually to New York, and by the time I arrived there, I suppose that I thought that I had arrived at a... There was a great sense of hubris on my part. After all, here I was the host of the Today program, which had been my mother's favorite been in our household every morning and I thought what more can I ask in life surely everyone must know who I am and what I do and I was in a New York department store with that coursing through my mind when I noticed a man following me along and I could see just by the quizzical expression in his brow that he thought he knew who I was and so what I do in those instances is kind of look at them and smile as if to say yes I'm Tom Brokaw (laughs) But in this case, it only encouraged him. And he came running up to me and he said, Tom Brokaw, right? And I said, that's right. He said, you used to work in Omaha. And I said, yes, I did, as a matter of fact. And he said, I'm from Omaha. And I said, well, isn't that nice? And he looked at me for a long moment. He said, whatever happened to you anyway? (laughs) time for about two questions before the bus leaves. I'd be happy to answer Mr. Milliken's questions or Mr. Hoffman's questions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my name is Kit am from Stillwater, Oklahoma. I was curious, um, about anyone of us here it's a pretty safe bet uh, envy you and would love to be on you know national TV at least once in our life, right. but, you're, <laughs> but I mean, you're there every day. Um, I was curious, does your job ever get mundane and if so how do you protect yourself from that? Now, let me deal with a basic premise because I do not realize that you are the, uh, on the cutting edge of the generation of people. How many here would like to be a television anchor man or anchor woman or would like to work in communications in some form? How many of you have considered that as a career? You see, I mean, it is an extraordinary number, and there are only a few jobs. What if people come to me these days and they say, Gee, I'd like to get into your business. What's your best advice? And my best advice is to study medicine these days. I mean, you know, think about being a doctor. It is uh, slightly oversold at the moment because you see in your homes and where you live in your communities the most glamorous part of it. Those people who appear well-coiffed and well-dressed and seem to make a lot of money who are there on television. That's the least important and least challenging aspect of what I do every day, which is between 6.30 and 7 or 7 and 7.30 or 5.30 and 6 maybe in your own community, which is to put on makeup and read out loud when you reduce it to its simplest elements. The most important and exciting and really uh, energizing aspects of my job are going out and covering stories, going to Beijing, Uh, Going to Europe for the NATO conference, getting on an airplane and fighting my way to Armenia to cover the uh, earthquake that existed there not so long ago. To look forward, Monday and Tuesday, actually Sunday, Monday and Tuesday of this week, I'll be in Los Angeles in slightly different attire, uh, riding with and spending time with both the anti-gang units from the L.A. County Sheriff's Unit and with the Bloods and the Crips, talking about the phenomenon of gangs in our society. That is the most rewarding part of what I do, because then I am in touch with the change in society. When I'm on television, that's quite one-dimensional. And in fact, it has a kind of an electronic coolness about it. When I look into those cameras, I'm not looking into your eyes or into your heart. I understand that there are occasions when I am there when I can sense the excitement that we have going, that there is important change. Sometimes it's celebration, when it's the inauguration of a president or something that has happened that makes everyone's heart gladden. Then there are those times of great tragedy, like the shuttle blowing up. Uh, Those are different occasions, but on a daily basis, sitting in front of a television camera and reading into it, or dealing with the change that is occurring as I am sitting there, that's the least rewarding part of what I do. And the most rewarding aspects of this business are, uh, I think, uh, engaged by people who really you never see on television cameramen and producers and editors down in the bowels of NBC who are putting all of that together. So that's an aspect of it that you ought to think about. One, we, more, one more question. Um, my name is Pokey Farron. I'm from Baltimore, Maryland. It always what worries me when they read the question, and I know I'm in trouble there. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is your personal opinion in regard to the difficulty that governments such as China place on America's freedom of the press, um, more specifically the fact that the Chinese government has lifted interviews and used them to expose and punish the sources of information? Well, what what she's talking about there is that uh, there are no rules in China. Well, there are some rules right now for uh, Western reporters, but they're unclear, and so you were reporting there at some risk. Um, and what happened is that we had stopped television transmissions from there. We were getting our videotape out on, uh, on airplanes to Hong Kong or to Tokyo, and then there was the chilling uh, experience of Chinese television intercepting an ABC transmission, identifying a Chinese citizen who was critical of the government's movements in Tiananmen Square, then taking that videotape, putting it on Chinese state television, identifying this man as a rumor monger and encouraging Chinese people to turn him in, which they did, And then the next night, we saw him on Chinese television before a military tribunal asking for forgiveness, and we think that he's probably in great trouble. That was a uh, great uh, journalistic and moral dilemma for those of us who were there, and what we then agreed to was that anyone who was critical of the government that appeared in one of our reports, that we would electronically mask their features so they could not be easily identified. Then, I I guess the other half of it is, I interviewed one of the uh, Chinese, we had the first (laughs) interview with the Chinese government official following the Tiananmen Massacre, and we worked very hard at getting that out, and obviously they're engaged in in the big lie. It's kind of fascinating to see a propaganda machine operating at full tilt these days because it, it is having some impact on that country, and when I interviewed him, he was able to make certain outrageous statements, and my obligation then was to challenge those at every turn of the way, which we did. Uh, Was that enough? It appeared then on Chinese television. I'm not sure that it was, frankly, uh, but that's part of the trade-off. We were eager to hear what the Chinese government's position was, and we thought it was important for the American television audience to know that as well, as well as for the American government. at the same time, on television now, every night in China and at noon, what you see is effectively a propaganda campaign without apology. Uh, it, it begins with uh, these people who always fascinate me, too, uh understated but uh, nice-looking Chinese man and Chinese woman reading in a kind of a low-key way, the government, the party line of the day. And the party line when I was there was that the soldiers were the victims and that the ruffians and the hooligans uh, had taken over the movement from the students and that every Chinese citizen had an obligation to turn in any of these suspects. And then every night that they would show different pictures. You must remember that 80% of China is rural. And a lot of it is illiterate. And television goes into those remote villages and it becomes their only source of information from the outside. They live in a Sensory deprivation is the only way to describe it, and therefore the Chinese state television can have a real impact in what they perceive is going on, and it is beginning to take root so far as we could tell. I talked to a number of people in parks and other places who said that they thought that, uh, in fact, that the soldiers were heroic and that the people in the square were wrong. And I don't think that they were telling me that just because they thought that that's what I wanted to hear. So I would say to you about China is that we are still in the middle of a great, turbulence pas- a great turbulent passage at the moment. I don't know how it's going to turn out. I think a lot of it depends on the health of Deng Xiaoping. If he is to live and go on for another couple of years, I think that the government will retain control. If he dies, there will be challenges politically within the Politburo. But how successful they will be, I don't know. But ultimately, the people who control that society are still people who are products of the 40 years of the communist revolution. And they don't come to their philosophy lightly. They have survived politically and personally because they bought into the system. And in fact, the students made, I'll leave you with two notes on this if you're interested. I thought that the students made two strategic and tactical errors. Strategically, I think that they made an error in not knowing quite what it was that they wanted. One young man was quoted as saying, I don't know what democracy is, but I believe that we need more of it. Um, and they ultimately had no way of resolving their own demonstrations, this movement that they triggered almost by accident. They didn't know where they wanted to get to. They had no real end goal in sight except that they wanted a greater freedom of expression. But they didn't know how to achieve that in a political sense once they met with the leaders. And what happened is that the other people then began to become involved in the movement. It did have, on the fringes of at least, a kind of mob mentality and then tactically a big mistake was, I think, is how they treated the army. Uh, When they held those young soldiers who were by and large from outside the city, many of them illiterate peasants in trucks for a long time, when the young Chinese intellectuals taunted them for their stupidity, it only caused those young soldiers to have a normal emotional response. And once the order was given then, I think what happened is that we had a total breakdown of command and control, an absence of discipline. It does not excuse what happened. It was a barbaric act on the part of the Chinese government. But at the same time, I think that if you, if you examine it, and as we will from some distance at some point, the students and our, many of the students uh, that I was able to talk to agree that they made a mistake along the way. It does not excuse, as I say, what happened in terms of the massacre but it was truly one of the memorable events of your lifetime because it took hold in a way that no one could anticipate. Well, I'm sorry we don't have time for more questions and answers, but we'll have a chance to chat. Thanks,